Welcome to Cato for a forum on the Supreme Court's latest blockbuster ruling in campaign finance law, McCutcheon versus Federal Election Commission, which isn't really that big a deal in practical terms and shouldn't have been so controversial, but we'll get to that. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here, and I'll be your moderator. To get us all on the same page, before this case, federal law put certain limits on contributions to candidates and parties. For the 2013-2014 election cycle, an individual couldn't give more than $2,600 to any single federal candidate or to a committee controlled by that candidate in any single election, primary or general. $32,400 per year to any political committee set up by a national party, $10,000 per year to any committee set up by a state party, or $5,000 per year to any other political committee, such as independent PACs, political action committees. Sean McCutcheon has no quarrel with those limits, at least not for the purpose of, these, of this case. Stay tuned for future developments. But here's the rub. There's also a total or aggregate limit on the amount that any one individual can donate in any election cycle. That aggregate limit, again, until this case, is or was $123,200, which is broken down to $48,600 to candidates and $74,600 to non-candidate groups, which includes national and state party committees, PACs, and other non-party committees. Got that? Now, in the last election cycle, the previous one, 2011-2012, Sean McCutcheon was prevented by the aggregate limits from going forward with a plan to contribute $1,776 to 28 different federal candidates. All would have been within the individual base limit, that $2,600 per primary, et cetera. And from donating what he planned to three committees set up by the National Republican Party, the RNC itself, and committees helping Senate and House candidates. On April 2nd, just over two months ago, the Supreme Court struck down those aggregate contribution limits because they couldn't be justified by the only reason for which the government can regulate political speech, to prevent quid pro quo corruption. Within days of the decision, while pundits and activists still battled uh, in the media, two e-books were published about the case. One by, was by Sean McCutcheon himself, an Alabama engineer who's quickly gone from political neophyte to Supreme Court plaintiff, providing a rare layman's account of high-stakes litigation. The other was by two law professors specializing in the First Amendment, Ron Collins uh, and his co-author David Scover, who dissect the court's ruling and put it in the broader context of campaign finance regulation. We have the authors of those books, Sean McCutcheon, who wrote Outsider Inside the Supreme Court, and Ron Collins, who co-authored When Money Speaks, here to discuss them. Uh, and you can purchase them, or at least uh, we have some hard copies of uh, Ron's book. There, there are e-books as well, so obviously there's flyers about how you can access that. You can find that out outside. Uh, and we also have a former FEC chairman, Don McGahn, uh, to offer further comment. I'll introduce them now in the order in which they'll speak. Sean McCutcheon grew up in Vestavia Hills, Alabama, and received his Bachelor of Electrical Engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology in 1989. We don't get too many electrical engineers speaking here, so this is a, a rare treat. Uh, Sean is a registered professional engineer and still attends Georgia Tech for continuing education. After graduation, he worked for an electrical controls company, heading up a number of heavy industrial projects for paper, steel, and other process industries. 
1996, Sean started his own uh, company, Colmont, which is located in Tuscaloosa County and focuses on difficult projects for the coal mining industry. His group is also working on new energy product, uh, projects in Alabama for clean coal liquefaction and alternate energy conversion. Sean is a sponsor of the Young Republicans and on the executive committee of the Jefferson County Republican Party. He's worked on many local campaigns with party leaders and helped secure the 2013 National Young Republican Convention in Mobile. Sean is a founding member of the Alabama GOP President's Council and chairman of the Conservative Action Fund, a super PAC that promotes conservative Republicans. He also sponsors several charities and hopefully has money left over to sponsor Cato. Ron Collins is the Harold S. Scheffelman Scholar at the University of Washington Law School. He was a Supreme Court Fellow under Chief Justice Warren Burger and a law clerk to Oregon Supreme Court Justice Hans Lind. Ron is the book editor at SCOTUS Blog and a contributing editor to the Concurring Opinions Blog, where he writes a weekly First Amendment news column, which is kind of a one-stop shop whenever it hits my uh, uh, email box about developments on the First Amendment that week. He's the author, co-author, or editor of nine books, more than 60 scholarly articles, and more than 250 articles in the popular press. In 2003, Ron and others successfully petitioned the governor of New York to posthumously pardon Lenny Bruce. The following year, he received the Hugh Hefner First Amendment Award, so colorful character as well. Uh, in 2010, Ron was a resident fellow at the Norman Mailer Writers' Colony in Provincetown, Massachusetts. In 2011, he received the Supreme Court Fellows Administration of Justice Award in recognition of his scholarly and professional achievements in advancing the rule of law. And in 2012, the American Society of Legal Writers awarded him a Scribes Book Award. This year already, Tony Morrow of the National Law Journal said that uh, when money speaks, the book that he's talking about now, quote, is and will always be the definitive work on the McCutcheon campaign finance case at the Supreme Court. Don McGahn is a partner at Jones Day, after having recently departed my firm, former law firm, Patton Boggs, where he advises and represents elected officials, candidates, national state parties, political consultants, and others on political law issues. During his tenure at the FEC, Don led what has been called a revolution in campaign finance, rewriting virtually all of the FEC's procedures for audits, enforcement matters, and advisory opinions. Several of his opinions represent the current state of law regarding issues such as coordination, issue advocacy, campaign travel, political party programs, and even emerging technologies. Don has counseled and defended federal and state candidates, members of Congress, national and state uh, party committees, leadership pacts, nonprofits, trade associations, corporations. If you involve, are involved in politics in any way, chances are he's represented, he's done something uh, in that area, and would be happy to assist. Um, earlier in his career, Don served as general counsel for the National Republican Congressional Committee, where he introduced several innovations, including what's become the standard structure for making uh, inde uh, independent expenditures. Now, while I'll be your moderator today, let me be clear that I'm in no way neutral about the subject matter that uh, we're discussing. I think McCutcheon was an easy case that was correctly decided, and I recommend both of these books to you. During the course of uh, our presentation, you're welcome to tweet questions or comments at me. and would try to be on the cutting edge of new media, even without Don's advice. Uh, but my Twitter handle is at iShapiro. 
for those of you especially who are viewing this on the live stream. Uh, and also those of you who are viewing it on the live stream, please tweet the score of the Australia-Holland soccer match at me, which has uh, just started uh, as well. I'm a big World Cup nut, but uh, at the, uh, uh, the, this Friday, uh, I am uh, becoming a U.S. citizen, and I was told that uh, that would mean that once that happens, you know, great event and all, but once that happens, I will stop caring about the World Cup. But nevertheless, that, that hasn't happened yet, so please do uh, tell me that score. Anyway, uh, Sean, let's hear a firsthand account of uh, campaign finance litigation in the Supreme Court. Well, hello. My name is Sean McCutcheon. And most of you probably don't know me, but my name recently gained uh, prominence in national politics and the news media. I didn't do much to seek this action other than I filed a lawsuit challenging federal campaign finance laws that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on last April 2nd, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in, a, in my favor in a case that bears my name, McCutcheon versus FEC. We won. And the First Amendment won, and most importantly, free speech won. Since then, I remain your neighbor, Sean, but countless people, especially here in D.C., react urgently when they hear my name, some with enthusiasm and some with anxiety. Many in the Republican Party are now calling me a rock star, which uh, I think is very interesting because uh, their idea of a rock star and mine aren't exactly the same. <laughs> but I'm enjoying the status, <laughs> and, it, and it's wonderful and getting better every day. And my lawyer refers to me as, or Maine SCOTUS lawyer, refers to me as Mr. Free Speech. Uh, for an electrical engineer from McCall, Alabama, uh, this has been a very unusual experience. Uh, I never expected all this First Amendment fame, but please let me tell you what the case is about and what the case is not about. During the last election cycle in 2011 and 2012, I was donating to various uh, you know, congressional and other federal candidates. And uh, all of a sudden, one of the local committees uh, that I was donating to, a state committee, the Alabama GOP, notified me that I might be nearing aggregate limits. And I'm like, well, what are aggregate limits? You know. I understood base limits, the amount you could donate to a single campaign, but I'd never heard of aggregate limits. And they gave me a chart that tried to outline uh, in a somewhat of a graphical thing, like we like in engineering. It had like uh, four uh, you know, quadrants on it and, so, and then a bunch of different routes where you could achieve aggregate limits. It was so complicated, I studied it for four hours, and I never did really understand it. So, uh, anyway, uh, I was in for, uh, with the encouragement of capable lawyers that I had already uh, retained through uh, super PACs and coming to parties in D.C. and general political activism, uh, they advised me that I could challenge those limits. And my lawsuit did not address contribution limits to the individual candidates or the base limits. The case is about aggregate limits or the overall numbers of candidates, PACs, and committees that we can donate to. 
It's, it's about our right as Americans to support as many political candidates, parties, and committees as we the people choose. During the subsequent years of the case, I encountered massive opposition from federal regulators, lower court judges, private lawyers, and many others with a stake in defending the status quo. Even the U.S. Solicitor General from the Justice Department argued against me at the court, citing Maseratis, citing Maseratis as a reason to crush the people's freedom. Fortunately, I've won on the vote that mattered, five to four, on behalf of the, the court majority, Chief Justice John Roberts ruled that aggregate limits on contributions to federal candidates and political parties are unconstitutional, and they really are. Excessive campaign finance restrictions impermissibly inject the government into our debate over who should govern. And he correctly wrote, and those who govern should be the last people to help decide who should govern. To me, this is more important than the money. The opinion has received a lot of attention. Some legal and media observers correctly point out that it affects only a narrow section of the Federal Campaign Act. Other pundits contend that the court majority has made sweeping revisions of the standards for constitutional review and campaign contributions. And as I've discovered, others in Washington want to continue the conflict to issue warnings that the fate of our republic is at stake. And it makes for a good fundraiser. A lot of people are raising money. The one thing that we do know for sure today is that aggregate limits have been struck down. There are no more aggregate limits holding us people back. So what does this mean for Sean McCutcheon? I'm grassroots proof that private citizens retain some influence and with determination we can achieve positive change in our country. In three distinct ways, I also remain the same person that I was before the case. The first way is in my professional life. I graduated from Georgia Tech in electrical engineering and now run a small business with 20 employees. In unexpected ways, my background was crucial to this lawsuit. My 25 years in electrical engineering and working with uh, large industrial clients and manufacturing operations and doing difficult projects convinced me that government bureaucrats here in D.C. were imposing excessive rules in campaigns and everything else for that matter. It was time for me to get involved. But how? A lawsuit? They really left us no options. In my personal life over the past few years, I have become a political activist with many other Alabama Republicans and young Republicans. I attend many meetings to discuss party ideas and candidates, and I have gone door to door to support others in the communities. My work within the Republican Party in Jefferson County has expanded to statewide activities and more recently to national Republican organizations such as the RNC. To me, the local politics remains as important as ever. Even the Democrats are considering Birmingham, Alabama for their 2016 convention. But in the third way, I will continue to 
pursue my enthusiasm for the First Amendment and free speech, which to me is First Amendment first. It all started with a freshman course in political science at Georgia Tech way back in the 1980s. It was there that I learned about constitutional liberties. I never really thought that one of those required classes that you have to take and you always say, well, I'll never use that, would actually be probably the most important thing I ever heard in my life. Given the viewpoint and the debates that I have heard from the dreaded speech police on the other side, it is more vital than ever for citizen activists to encourage public education and get involved, especially when it comes to our freedoms, which are the core of our American life. The rules and procedures that guide our campaign finance system are not easy to understand. There have been many changes and controversies in recent years, and most of these are separate from the Supreme Court ruling in my case, but they are ongoing. And it's funny, because the same people in D.C. and uh, on the other side that decry the total amount of money that I can support for candidates also decry the amount of money injected into our politics by PACs and super PACs, political action committees. Well, here's reality. PACs came into being only after campaign finance limits were imposed during the 1970s. PACs have grown from about 600 to, you know, back then in the 70s to thousands today. Why? Because people weren't allowed to give to individual campaigns and parties, so they've done the next best thing. They donate to PACs and super PACs. In one fell swoop, supporters of campaign finance laws have managed to supercharge the growth of super PACs while taking away the ability of average Americans to directly support the candidates who would actually take office in the people's service. PAC decision-making, especially by big corporate and union PACs, is less transparent and less accountable. Isn't it an important goal to have transparency and openness in our elections? By the way, I'm not against super PACs or PACs. In fact, I helped found the Conservative Action Fund, which is a super PAC that promotes conservative ideas, because I feel like we need to get the message out about how much better things can be and how much more opportunity we can really have if we quit trying to rely on government to deliver and do things that it can never do and never deliver. And, you know, in recent years, super PACs have grown in size and influence, and I'm all for donating to them. And as far as aggregate limits go, I plan on blowing them all out, the candidates, the PACs, and the parties. You know, now we can do uh, 99,000 of the parties, and, uh, you know, there's only, they have actually... You know, we can max out to all three, and again, on the candidates, you can support as many as you want, and the state parties, which are the PACs. I plan to do all of the above with uh, as much money as I can find, and then, of course, I am going to donate to Cato. <laughs> <laughs> the most important thing, right? <laughs> but the limit. the elimination of aggregate limits will not only empower the American people, but it will influence the uh, super PACs in ways that will benefit our political system because they're 
will be a shift from super PACs to back to the classic parties and, you know, directly to the candidates' campaigns. But I hope that one result of the Supreme Court ruling in my case will be to increase the traditional forms of contributions to groups like the RNC that do such an excellent job of presenting the candidates to us and helping us to see what our options really are. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote at length that the only reason to prevent contributions is when they are used for quid pro quo corruption. According to previous court rulings, that refers to an exchange of money for an act or dollars for political favors. Sometimes that standard can seem real vague, especially when they talk about appearance of corruption, whatever that is. But but Chief Justice Roberts added, the distinction must be respected in order to safeguard basic First Amendment rights. In other words, the First Amendment is more important than some uh, arbitrary concept of a monster under the bed or, some, or something we can't explain. Others, including dissenters like Justice Breyer in my Supreme Court case, have ta- taken a very broad view of corruption and the threat that it supposedly poses. I agree, of course, that violations of the public trust are not acceptable and they should be prosecuted. But I disagree with those who view corruption as an everyday part of campaign finances that pervades our nation's politics, especially when it's donations from the people. The current system unmistakably benefits incumbents. They're the ones that wrote these laws. And I haven't met many candidates on either side or even independents that aren't pretty interested in re-election. That's generally a common theme. So why is it that 95% of them get reelected uh, when there's uh, favorability in the teens or as low as, you know, less than 20%? The status quo has been created chiefly by the so-called political reformers and has had the perverse but seemingly intended effect of protecting incumbents except for infrequent voter disgust. My objective is to assist challengers in raising funds and to encourage smarter political ideas in the political marketplace. Let's see who's out there and let's see what their ideas are and let's hear what they have to say. The challenge of preserving our democracy comes down to freedom. Your freedom and my freedom to express ourselves openly and fully within our political system. And if there is one thing that we Americans believe in, it's that freedom never corrupts. Please join me in... protecting the First Amendment, free speech, and our other American values. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Ron Collins, and I am not a rock star, uh, nor an electrical engineer. But I am someone who had the privilege, along with my co-author, David Scover, uh, to track this case in real time uh, from the beginning to the end, from the beginning of the case uh, to the end. And I think I was among the first people to speak with Sean uh, when his uh, 
victory in this case was announced. Um, it is a pleasure to be here today at Cato, and I want to thank Ilya and Roger Pillon uh, for making this possible. Um, I think it's fair to note uh, that in the area of First Amendment law, uh, the work that Ilya does by way of presenting briefs to the United States Supreme Court has not gone unnoticed in the First Amendment community and is held in high regard. And in that regard, it is a pleasure uh, to be here on this program with him today. Um, before I proceed, though, I'd like to recognize uh, somebody uh, whose, name she, whose name you may not know. His name is in our book. Uh, and without in any way stealing under any thunder from um, Aaron Murphy, uh, the woman who uh, argued uh, the case in the Supreme Court uh, on behalf of Mr. McCutcheon, I think it's fair to recognize Dan Backer uh, for his contribution to this case. Um, behind every great case, uh, there are some folks who make it possible, and without their contribution, the case would have been un impossible. And I think it's fair, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that Dan is one of those people. And so He's the master networker. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, with that, uh, and in true professorial style, which is my calling, um, that means it's going to be Socratic, and he's going to be calling on you for all the answers. Speaking of that, Ilya, I'd like to start off. <laughs> <laughs> In any event, I'd like to na uh, make uh, nine points, albeit brief ones, uh, and they're in plain English, so not to worry, about why I think this case is an important one. Ilya said it was an easy one. That may or may not be, um, uh, or perhaps it should have been an easy one. Um, but I think, nonetheless, whether or not it's easy or not, it is an important case for at least, I think, nine reasons. So let me start off with the first one. Uh, campaign finance uh, cases now are at the top of the Roberts Court's uh, preferred list when it comes to First Amendment uh, cases. Um, uh, these uh, cases uh, have become, if you will, the mark of the Roberts Court uh, in the past eight years uh, since the Chief Justice uh, came to the court and Justice Samuel Alito, uh, the court has handed down no fewer than six First Amendment uh, cases having to do with campaign finance law. In all of those cases, save one, the vote was five to four. In one case, the Sorrell case, the vote was six to three. What we have here is the emergence of a trend, a trend already well along uh, its way um, when it comes to campaign finance cases. I suspect we will see a lot more of them as they work their way to the court. Just as the Berger and Rehnquist courts, at least in the First Amendment area, uh, came to be known for the development of the commercial speech doctrine, I think the Roberts Court were seeing something similar happening when it comes to campaign finance cases and election cases. So that's the first point. The second point is, without a doubt, Chief Justice John Roberts has become the court's First Amendment leader. When, uh, with McCutcheon, the Chief Justice has written uh, the most majority or plurality opinions, three, in the campaign finance line of cases. Um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has also written the most majority or plurality opinions, namely 11, in the 32 First Amendment free expression cases handed down since he came to the court. This is more than twice as many as the next justices in line, namely Justice Anthony Kennedy and Justice Antone Scalia. So it's rather remarkable 
uh, what's happening uh, with the court, first in terms of the kind of cases, First Amendment cases they're interested in, and really who is the person who is taking the lead here. Um, the third point I would make is that the court has begun to move away from, if you will, balancing tests. Uh, uh, balancing is becoming a thing of the past in more and more First Amendment cases, although not enough, uh, as evidenced by what happened in the McCutcheon case and the court's refusal, or at least the majority's refusal, to embrace a so-called balancing test. The problem with so-called balancing tests is they come after the fact. They're very subjective. And if you go back to the words of the First Amendment, and I know in this hall those words are important, the law says Congress shall make no law. It is the making of the law that is objectionable. Not that the law should be illegal and then determined on a balancing test after the fact. And so I think it's fair to say with increasing frequency the Roberts Court is moving away uh, from that framework. Uh, the fourth point I would make is that the court has shunned, and I think rightfully so, any collective notion of the First Amendment. Uh, Justice Stephen Breyer's complaints to the contrary in his dissent in the McCutcheon uh, case, the collective view of the First Amendment, and I, I have to say there's a certain irony in saying the collective view of the First Amendment because it's precisely the collectivity of the majority that is typically the ones who are uh, abridging rights. But the court has rejected that view. It has rejected communitarian thinking and has uh, instead uh, uh, embarked on a, a libertarian or a more libertarian notion of First Amendment freedom. The fifth point I would make is that legal conclusions are starting to trump factual determinations. Again, legal conclusions are starting to trump factual determinations. Because of the posture of the case, and I can say more about that later, uh, the factual record was incomplete in the McCutcheon case. And, in, and, in, and for that reason, Justice Breyer, during oral argument, suggested that the case be remanded back to Janice Rogers Brown's court. By the way, uh, Justice Janice, Judge Janice Rogers Brown had denied the First Amendment claim, although she did say the law was very unsettled and murky. Um, but in any event, the record was incomplete. Nonetheless, uh, the court uh, found its way by certain First Amendment conclusions uh, to deal with the case. Um, by, by the way, and, and Dan might want to speak about this uh, more, there is an election law First Amendment case now before the Third Circuit in which there was no discovery below. For those of you who are interested, the case is Delaware Strong Families versus Biden. That's Biden, the Attorney General. Um, the sixth point is that the court has narrowed the focus of what constitutes corruption. I think Sean made reference to this uh, uh, point. Uh, they have narrowed the notion of corruption. Uh, they have rejected the concept of uh, systemic political corruption and instead focused on quid pro quo type of corruption. I can say more about, we can say more about that later, but suffice it to say uh, that is an important point. Buckley's wall between, the seventh point I would make is that Buckley's wall, that is Buckley against Vallejo, uh, between contributions and um, expenditures has been breached. Prior to this case, 
for all practical purposes, that line remained fairly uh, sturdy. Uh, and, but with this case, um, uh, that line uh, was breached because uh, this was a contributions case. Uh, it was not an expenditures case. Um, and it was breached by way of looking to the rationale uh, of Buckley, uh, namely uh, uh, the type of corruption uh, that the court identified in that case. Uh, now, one must wonder whether or not, given what happened in the McCutcheon case, the court will now revisit in a formal way that dichotomy between contributions on one hand and expenditures on the other. Um, and if they do want to revisit that, they can take a look at Ilya's brief in the Supreme Court, which urged them uh, to abandon that dichotomy. And it was precisely that view that Justice Clarence Thomas articulated and advanced in his opinion. I suspect that what we may see is, let us say we have a contributions case, and Dan is much more experienced in this area than I am. Just a little side note on this. My background is in First Amendment law, which I've been working in for 30 years. But I must tell you, it was a real chore to do this book because David and I, as co-author, came to the rude awakening that election law is a law unto itself. And uh, so I defer uh, to the experts like Dan and others, uh, and it uh, humbles those of us who teach First Amendment law when we come to these line of cases. But be that as it may, uh, we do the best we can with our professorial hats. Um, be that as it may, uh, I think what we may see in the future is a case, a contributions case, where there's no whiff of corruption, all right? That somebody has exceeded the amount that they can give, but there's no real whiff of corruption. In that case, we may well see uh, uh, the court uh, following uh, the counsel that Ilya and others have recommended, and that is to abandon the dichotomy advanced um, in Buckley against Vallejo. Uh, by the way, it's a, important to remember and an opinion in which uh, Justice uh, William Brennan, after whom an institute has been named, uh, wrote uh, a significant portion of that opinion. Um, the um, eighth point I would make is um, corporations and unions, emphasis added, unions, uh, now stand on the same footing as individuals when it comes to aggregate contributions. That is, uh, in light uh, of Citizens United, um, labor unions and uh, uh, corporations uh, can uh, contribute as much as they want uh, without worrying about aggregate limitations thanks to the precedent uh, that has now been set in the McCutcheon case. And finally, um, um, judicial restraint, and this is my ninth point, judicial restraint has now, oddly enough, uh, become the mantra of the liberal left. Uh, though it was a phrase that was never given much liberal credence in First Amendment cases, uh, judicial restraint has, I said, as I've said, has now become the uh, mantra of the left. I think... Um, uh, Justice Breyer's dissent uh, takes the majority to task in this regard for its refusal to defer to the majoritarian will and congressional expertise when it comes to judging these line of cases. 
but it is precisely the function of the first amendment properly understood all right to if you will put brakes on the majoritarian will in the name of liberty uh, so i think that is uh, rather significant i could say uh, more uh, but in the in the name of uh, time i will stop there and turn it to our next speaker thank you Good afternoon. Yes, it's afternoon. Uh, my name is Don McGann. I want to begin by thanking Cato Institute for having this and Ilya for the invite. It's always an honor to be here at Cato. Um, when I was a, a commissioner at the FEC, one of the most exciting opportunities I had was to speak here at Cato. Uh, I'm not really a think tank kind of guy, but I, uh, it, to the extent you put me in a camp, I was always a Cato kind of guy. So it's always an honor to be here um, and, and a thrill and to see so many uh, familiar faces in the audience is also encouraging and also uh, nerve-wracking. I want to begin by saying, first of all, uh, there's, there's no nice way to say it, but the side of liberty has won, and it's won going away uh, in case after case after case. Um, so uh, meanwhile, at the Supreme Court, they are talking about First Amendment liberty, uh, but inside the Beltway, Senate Democrats are pushing a constitutional amendment to amend the First Amendment. There seems to be a radical disconnect between where the court is, um, and not just this court, you know, this talk of the Roberts Court, but the court generally um, throughout the years where the court has been and where the court is now versus where Senate Democrats are. seems to be much more political theater than, than serious discussion over there on this point, but it, 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 it is worth mentioning that it is happening. Let me talk a little bit about McCutcheon and the number of problems that the court confronted, some legal, some practical, and why the case really matters uh, to those of us who actually who, who practice in the area and have to deal with all these ever-changing uh, rules and regulations that, that govern the ability of private citizens like Sean McCutcheon to participate in politics. The first problem was that it did prevent individuals from supporting a number of candidates of their choice. Um, and it took it took someone with the courage of Sean to actually put his name on a brief and file it. Those of us in the Beltway who represent people, we always like to think we're the star of the show, but really it takes someone like Sean to step up and and actually bring the actually bring the suit. And what do I mean by prevented individuals from giving? Well, the aggregate limit had a weird effect where you could give a maximum contribution to a handful of candidates, but once you hit a certain point, you essentially could not give any more candidates to any more candidates. This seemed odd if one wanted to support candidates who were not sure bets. One could see sort of a justification for the aggregate limit to prevent people from giving multiple contributions to committee chairs in the House or Senate or leadership or the like. But if you're someone who wants to give to upstart candidates, open seat candidates, challenger candidates, and the ones who are not as sure bet, it's tough to see the appearance of corruption rationale for giving to a bunch of people who may not ever win. Uh, so if someone wanted to give to candidates that even if they knew in their heart probably would never win, they couldn't. So it's really tough for the government to justify that, and, and they really couldn't justify that in any sort of reasoned basis. Um, second, um, from, from this point of view, it's not just about the contributors. It's also about the candidates. And I tend to come at these things more from the candidates' perspective and those who are actually on the ballot and those that have to navigate these rules. If you are a candidate challenging a well-entrenched incumbent, 
the biannual, uh, by, by, by the biannual limit got in the way of your ability to raise money because by the time the folks who had, who had the means to support you got around to you, they had already tapped out giving to the usual suspects inside the beltway. Um, one could go back in history and see times where this would have, would have prevented some certain things. I always talk about when you look at the restrictions McCain-Feingold put on the party committees, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in a second, one would wonder if Abraham Lincoln would have ever gotten out of the gate uh, if McCain-Feingold were in effect or if the Republican Party would have ever happened uh, if McCain-Feingold were around. Same is true of candidates. Um, for example, uh, 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 McCarthy's campaign in 68 apparently was funded by a handful of wealthy individuals. If the limits had been in effect then, Clean Gene would have probably never seen the light of day on the presidential scene. Uh, I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but it did. Um, um, so if you think at it from the candidate's point of view, it was starving off candidates, particularly those who needed the funds the most. So when, those talk, when, when people talk about incumbent protection, this is one example of that, where those who are the obvious choices to get the big money get the money first, and those who are, who are not yet cool don't get the money. So from the candidate's point of view, McCutcheon is a very, very good thing. Uh, next, it forced the party committees to compete for funds in a, in a rather awkward way. Party committees can take up to certain limits of $25,000 at the time of McCain-Feingold's passage. It's since been indexed for inflation. I actually don't have it memorized out to the dollar. I always look at the chart because every two years it changes. So to, to avoid you know, giving people wrong advice, I always consult the, the, the law before, before throwing out the number. But the biennial limit forced the party committees to compete against each other because before you maxed out to the three national committees, for example, you would run into, the, run into this limit. Same is true from the state parties. They were, they were coming out of the same kind of uh, problem. They would compete with PACs and others. So you had what should be party committees working in harmony to raise money competing with each other. So this is really at odds with what the court had said with respect to party committees for years. For example, the Jones case out of California talked about the associational rights of parties and how the parties are there to really work together, and they have not only speech interests but associational interests and the like. And those were really being, being stepped upon by the, by, by the way the limit was written. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a, a, a limited benefit to parties. I don't want to overstate, and, and, and I, don't, I don't really buy into this idea this is a great leveler and it's going to bring the parties back into the game. There's a number of problems party committees still confront with respect to McCain-Feingold, but this is a step in the right direction. Uh, third point, constitutionally, the, the limit never made a whole lot of sense given what the court had already said. You have direct contribution limits to candidates. To the extent you buy into that as a way to, to, to stem corruption or its appearance, those make some sense because it's money given directly to a politician. This extra limit was kind of a free-floating belt and suspenders approach that really didn't seem tied to any sort of particular politician or any sort of corruption interest. It seemed to feel and, and, and operate more as a, as a spending limit. And, and whether one looks at Buckley or more recent decisions, there's a fork in the road between contribution limits and spending limits. So to me, I'm not entirely sure that the, 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 the wall between contributions and spending uh, has been breached. Um, I think it's really been more that what's a contribution has been redefined. The court didn't quite put it in these terms. They did characterize it as a contribution limit. When I was at the Federal Election Commission, this issue came before us, and in my in discussions at the table, I made this point that to me this is much more like a spending limit designed to simply label something a contribution that is really not. It's more of a, an overall cap. Um, next, since Citizens United and McCutcheon, a number of states have upped their contribution limits, which brings us to the, 
to the, the question that, that most ask, which is, what's the solution to the problem? Well, one first must identify the problem. I don't agree all this is a problem. But let's assume for the sake of, of argument that there's a problem that needs to be solved. Um, states uh, are reacting, I think, properly, which is the, the problem solver is not the government. It's ultimately the people. And by upping the limits, it's going to allow people to fund candidates um, uh, in a way that is more publicly accountable uh, and more transparent. Meanwhile, as I already mentioned in my opening salvo, inside the Beltway, Senate Democrats are trying to amend the Constitution to undo all of this. So it's hard to see the math of passing an amendment when 20-some states uh, have already upped their contribution limits to, and then they were pass an amendment that would undo their own legislative decisions. It simply doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but let's talk about the limits and, 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 and how they really operate. The limits uh, came into being in the early 1970s. The act was originally passed in 71. The limits were put in, I think, in 74 in the amendments. And um, you hear much all this talk about the uh, Supreme Court's opened up all this big money and all this, all this is new and all this new spending and it's just out of control. Look, there's a lot of money in politics, but when you compare it to how we advertise for chocolate chip cookies, it's a drop in the bucket. And this is our democracy that we're talking about. So if we can spend, you know... Uh, more money on advertising for potato chips than we do on our campaigns. I actually think there should be more money supporting free speech, not less. But but looking to the limits, let's take, for example, the state party limit. An individual can give $10,000 to a state party committee. That was the limit set in 1974. I was on vacation not too long ago, and I, I went into a gift shop, and they had these little books, and it had each year, like year you were born. And it actually gave a, a list of what was the average salary and income and what different people made. Um, in, in those years, and the average income in around the time the limit was put in was somewhere between $10,000 and $12,000, depending on how you read the chart. So the average income could be given to a state party, and this was, uh, this was in 1974 time when, uh, you know, the, the Watergate was, 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 was brewing and the, 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 there was a, a sort of hope reform wave of Democrats were being elected every cycle to the, to the House and the Senate, and this was at the height of sort of the reform the reform movement, and it was still $10,000 to state parties, which was the same as a yearly income for, for a lot of Americans. So the idea that somehow the rich, quote-unquote, have, now have a special advantage as opposed to what they had before it just doesn't make any sense. Um, what ought to happen is Congress ought to think about indexing the limits for real and upping the limits to, so that the, the, the money that's given today matches the money people could have been given in the, in the mid-'70s. So in real dollars today, the state party limit should be about $40,000 per individual, not $10,000, which brings me to my next point. Some limits have been removed. Some limits are the same. And what this, results is, what's this, what's this has caused is a situation is aspirated by McCain-Feingold. The party committees have really gone away. They used to be about people. They used to be about grassroots. They're now bank accounts. Um, the Tea Party movement used to be really the grassroots people and party committees, and even to a certain extent the Occupy folks probably would have found a home in the other party as, as more of a grassroots component. They are now pushed outside of the parties, and a lot of this is driven by the, by the funding. McCain-Feingold has federalized much of their election activity, get out the vote, voter ID, the sort of nuts and bolts party programs that the parties have done for years have been federalized. It has to be done under, under these low uh, contribution limits. Meanwhile, independent speech is anything goes. Uh, so it really puts the parties at a competitive disadvantage. I'm not an equal speech guy, so let's not, let's not confuse what I'm saying with somehow leveling the playing field for the sake of leveling. I come at it from 
what's best for the body politic. And I think what's best for the body politic is that the candidate's voice is more the central voice in American politics. And when voters go into the booth, they have a choice between the candidates, not single-issue super PAC ads, not what the newspapers say, but what the candidates actually represent. Uh, and I think one way to, to, to help that goal is to get the party committees more in the game because the party committees are much more of a natural echo chamber for the candidates than single-issue groups and the like. Next point I want to make, separate and apart from McCutcheon, is, is much of the talk about big money and big corporations and, and the, the notion that they stand on the same footing, as I said earlier, stand on the same footing as amendments, uh, as, as individuals regarding aggregate limits. Well, on the one hand, they don't. Corporations are still banned from giving directly to candidates, as are labor unions. So they're not on the same footing as individuals with respect to aggregate limits because they're already banned. But on the other hand, um, on the other hand, I always like to read these articles to talk about big corporations and how the corrupting influence of the money and all this. I like to, sub- I like to just substitute the word the media in place of, for big corporation or big money. And it actually becomes a much more persuasive thing because when those who want to talk about equal speech, leveling the playing field and how the Supreme Court's blown a big hole in things and all this new money's coming in and corrupting the process, never seems to talk about the corporatization of the media and the fact that media is now owned by the same kind of corporations, in some instances the same corporations, uh, that supposedly are causing all the so-called problems. So when one, one tries to build a better mousetrap to sort of eat, make, make everything level and, and, and limits and that kind of thing, you're never really going to be able to do it because unless you, unless you really start clamping down on the media, which I don't see how that works under the First Amendment, uh, you're never going to do it. So the answer can't be limit some speakers at the expense of others. This was really the lesson of Citizens United. Citizens United was not about making corporations persons for the first time. That had been the case for, for years and years and years. It was about certain corporations, the media corporations, could speak, and other corporations could not. And that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you frame it that way. The idea that Citizens United could, uh, could, uh, had a movie that uh, adults could not watch in the privacy of their own home on pay-per-view cable because of McCain-Feingold made no sense. That's what that case was about. It was not about anything other than a movie what was amazing about Citizens United was four justices actually said that movie could be banned in the privacy of your own home. Um, ultimately, um, two final points. First, what's the Supreme Court doing? I don't see it really as some, some new innovative approach. I think it's, it's much more consistent with what the court has done for years and years and years. And I really see it as a reaction to McCain-Feingold and the variety of rules and regulations the Federal Election Commission has pushed out over the years with their multi-factor balancing tests and this we're not really sure what the law is game that the FEC plays, where you're not really sure what you can and can't do until after you speak and then after an investigation of several years, then you get to go to an Article Three judge and say, we're not really too sure what the FEC is doing. Supreme Court has said you can't do that. The FEC keeps trying to do it, but they can't do it. And this is really, to me, where the court's coming from. It's a visceral reaction to bureaucratic overreach and this, this know-it-when-you-see-it approach the campaign finance law uses time and time again. Finally... There's some good news. Voters still decide things. This gets lost in the shuffle of all the hype and the idea that corporations are buying elections and the like. Voters still go to the polling place. They still have to vote, and they still have to tally the votes, and that's who we see who wins. Uh, In case we missed it, I don't think anyone in D.C. missed it, but just the other day a primary election was held in the state of Virginia. An incumbent candidate raised $5 million. A challenger raised $200,000, and a $200,000 candidate won. 
Part of his theme was that the $5 million candidate had become too beholden to Washington, D.C. and special interests and the like. I don't pass judgment on such things, but it is a, is a, is a very timely example that voters still decide elections. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. I, I rather like the kind of different perspectives, the, the plaintiff, the scholar, the practitioner. Uh, so I hope that we've generated lots of uh, queries that, that you can all ask. Uh, before I open it up uh, to audience Q&A, I did want to note, uh, we were talking about you know, Sean McCutcheon being a rock star of the Republican Party or what have you. Don is is an actual rock star. He has a band, and actually, a, a, he apparently got a haircut. I, most times I see him, it's much more you know, apparent that he's an actual rock star, but I encourage you to see him. What's the name of your latest band? Uh, it's, it's called Scott's New Band. Yeah, it, yeah we, we're not particularly creative. Okay. That's, that's, that's the best we can come up with. Scott's a singer. So. <laughs> uh, secondly, it's 1-1 uh, uh, Australia Netherlands at the, at the half, in case anyone uh, uh, cared. Tim Cahill scored an incredible goal that I commend to you. He has now scored more uh, World Cup goals than Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and uh, Wayne Rooney combined. So uh, quite uh, interesting for the Socceroo fans. Uh, and finally, uh, it does seem, you know, in, in a little more seriousness, that a lot of these issues that we've uh, that have been raised uh, in these presentations is that uh, conservatives uh, and libertarians especially, of course, are, are now seem to be the protectors and advocates of the First Amendment rather, rather than liberals. Uh, this is kind of a, uh, and this is, goes broader than, than campaign finance. Uh, you know, what it used to be that you think about the First Amendment and freedom of speech, well, you know, it's, it's the ACLU, it's, it's, you know, uh, hippies from the 60s who want to burn flags and, you know, pole dance and you know, all the rest of it. But all of a sudden, uh, the cases that reach the Supreme Court, um, this is something that Floyd Abrams, the noted First Amendment advocate, is writing a book on now. David Savage, the LA Times, had a couple of stories on it. Um, so I want to just start the discussion by asking Ron. Uh, we've emailed about this a little bit, but what, 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 what do you, you know, is this a real trend or is it just kind of a few cases? Is, is there something to this? What, what are you observing as kind of a longtime uh, a scholar of the First Amendment? Uh, well, first of all, I'm a scholar, not a rock star. And Don, sorry for calling you Dan. Um, but okay, people have called me much worse. All right. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, in response to the question, if you look at the uh, record of the campaign finance cases between 1976 and 2010, you will see 14 briefs, amicus briefs, or briefs for the major party uh, filed by the American Civil Liberties Union. All of those briefs, all 14, um, urged that the First Amendment claim be sustained and that the law in question uh, be challenged. Uh, people talk about Buckley versus Vallejo. Uh, there was also a fellow named Eugene McCarthy uh, who was in that case, and uh, he was uh, one of the parties. Uh, basically, what's happened in the ACLU since, since Citizens United, last case they filed brief in, no briefs have been filed by the American Civil Liberties Union on behalf of a First Amendment claim. Uh, what's happened is former officials of the ACLU 
are now filing briefs in opposition. And sometimes, you, prior to 2010, you actually had cases where the ACLU was on one side and former officials of the ACLU were on the other. It's rather remarkable. And just to bring this full loop, in cases having to do with sexual expression, hate speech, uh, corporate speech, uh, commercial speech, so-called uh, uh, bullying, uh, religious speech, in a number of areas, uh, those who have traditionally been at the vanguard of protecting the First Amendment uh, now are the ones who are leading um, uh, the opposition. And uh, Floyd Abrams, has, has, as suggested, has uh, spoken about this. And uh, it is becoming more and more of a trend. I would just say this. Uh, as a practical matter, the legal academy so far as First Amendment professors goes, um, there's only a handful. I, I don't even think there's enough professors on one uh, to, to fill one five fingers uh, who are willing to defend the Roberts Court. I, uh, at a recent uh, conference at Yale uh, Law School, 30 papers were presented. And as Floyd Abrams noted, out of the 30, not a single paper, not a single one, all on First Amendment freedom of expression, uh, came to the defense uh, of the Roberts Court. And I think that's as good as any indicator as where we are today. Yes. Um, I've noticed that, too, with the ACLU and others, uh, that they seem to have moved – to be kind, moved away from the First Amendment. I can talk a little bit about my experience at the FEC, which when I was appointed, it was 2008. Um, Wisconsin Right to Life had been handed down. The Davis decision, which most people characterize as simply a millionaire's amendment case, had been handed down. But – the opinion by Justice Alito was really a tour de force of all sorts of things that had nothing to do with, with, um, with the Millionaire's Amendment. I mean, after all, they cited – the majority in Davis cited to the dissent in Austin as if it was already the law, right? So that was kind of a, that was kind of a clue that something was up. Um, I found myself at the FEC citing opinions by what used to be called sort of the wild-eyed the wild liberals like Justice Brennan and Justice Douglas and the like. And to those observing the FEC, they really found a disconnect that somebody who was supposedly, you know, this firebrand, you know, right-winger was, was embracing Brennan and Douglas and these guys that were supposedly firebrand left-wingers. It really shows that um, what I mentioned in my comments I think is true, which is, which is that historically what the court's doing today is much more in line with what the court had done years ago as opposed to what I call the exceptions like the McConnell case where they sort of – change track and I think Austin was more of an outlier. So I think when, when one looks at it, it's um, you don't always know uh, who's on what team, so to speak, at the Supreme Court because what used to be the liberal ju justices are now the conservative justices and, and it just it's kind of one of those things. What's, what's alarming to me though is, is, the, mm -hmm. is the lurch uh, from those on the left against free speech and you see it really in, in Justice Breyer's dissent in McCutcheon. I mean that with all due respect, that's from Mars. I mean, if that becomes the law, that's a whole new way of thinking. Um, and uh, it goes The collective right view. Of yeah, the, the collective right view of the First Amendment. The idea that somehow an amendment designed to prevent the tyranny of the majority somehow is driven by the majority. It just, I don't, I'm not a smart guy. Like I said, I'm not really a think tank kind of guy. I'm a practitioner, so I don't really go into the theoretical thing. But to me, it makes no sense. That you can have you can have that 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 sort of approach, but they seem to be embracing it, and there just has become this real passion uh, for this in a way that I find troubling. 
All right, let's open it up to the audience. I will just ask that you please wait to be called on, and we'll have microphones circulating. Uh, wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and uh, on our audience uh, uh, on the live web stream uh, can hear your question, announce your name and affiliation, and actually ask a question. So. Testing. Okay. Uh, my name is Kellen Howell. I'm a reporter with the Washington Times. Um, I just had a quick question about joint fundraising committees. Um, this has been something that's been brought up as becoming a lot more popular after the McCutcheon case. And I was wondering if that was something that um, you guys had talked about or had been something that was predicted and discussed, and whether or not you think that that's a positive outcome or a negative outcome. John, you want to start? Sure. Um, just to sort of define terms before we answer so everyone understands. A joint fundraising committee is a committee set up by a number of campaigns uh, for accounting purposes. There's regulations in the FEC regs that, that permit these. And what it does is it permits, it, it, it permits committees to get together and essentially have one fundraising event instead of having a series of fundraising events in a way that makes it compliant with the contribution limits. If a campaign paid for a fundraising event and raised money for another committee, that would be a contribution from the one paying to the one receiving the benefit. So all joint fundraising committees do is permit committees to split the overhead of a fundraising event. Um, I've always been a big fan of using joint fundraising committees. I think they, they, they help with the economy of scale. Uh, I think it allows sometimes candidates who wouldn't otherwise have a shot raise money. For example, if they're part of a joint fundraising committee with multiple candidates who are more well-known, they may have the benefit of that and raise money they otherwise wouldn't be able to raise. Same is true for state and local parties. Sometimes they're added to joint fundraisers. Um, joint fundraising committees did run into this uh, did, did, did run into this limit that was struck in the McCutcheon case. Um, I think it's too early to, to tell whether or not it's going to matter much because ultimately – what you have to keep in mind is joint fundraising committees are still subject to the base limits. It's not a way for people to write $3 million checks for one candidate or any of the nonsense that you have read in the newspaper. It's still subject to the base limits. And whether that, whether that candidate – Again, base limits is 2600 per right. candidate Thanks, per yep. primary or general election. That right. goes up a little bit every cycle. Right. So – the donor could write a check directly to the first candidate and then the second candidate, third candidate, that sort of thing. Can you have more money raised at a single event than you could before McCutcheon? Sure. But, you know, my answer to that is I think it actually is, is a net benefit for a certain kind of candidate and a certain kind of party committee. And there are two microphones, so if you have a question, raise your hand, and I'll indicate where the next one will go. Paul Jacob with the Liberty Initiative Fund. Um, I was very glad that you mentioned this Senate uh, constitutional amendment, which not only turns the First Amendment on its head in terms of allowing Congress to regulate uh, campaign contributions, but also allows them to regulate campaign expenditures, um, which is even worse that's possible. Um, and I wonder whether you think this is something that could get uh, more play, because I think when if the American people were more aware of what the Senate Democrats were up to, uh, they'd be very frightened. Uh, 
I was uh, at um, that uh, hearing um, that Senator Leahy held. Um, I should note, uh, in fairness, um, uh, that the American Civil Liberties Union did uh, and did go on record as opposing uh, that uh, proposed constitutional amendment, which would be the first in the history of our country to amend uh, the First Amendment. I also think that it was, to be kind, most unusual for um, Justice um, Stevens uh, to uh, write a book, uh, not only proposing a number of amendments to our Bill of Rights. In other words, so I guess now the idea is, is if you're on the wrong end of a five to four opinion, then you write a book urging a constitutional um, amendment for any variety of reasons, whatever one's political stripes are, that concerns me. Um, but also, uh, you know, the fact that he used the term reasonable, uh, he took a word from the Fourth Amendment to amend the First Amendment, which is really uh, unusual. Of course, uh, uh, that uh, proposed amendment is going nowhere, uh, and I think they, um, um, they know that, but I do think it is a dangerous precedent uh, when um, members of, uh, of the Senate and the House uh, start to propose amendments to our Bill of Rights when there's some difference of opinion. We may all have our differences. Let us fight it out in the legislative arena. But I think uh, we shouldn't uh, even flirt with the idea uh, of amending our Bill of Rights. Hi, I'm Joshua Schneier, unaffiliated. Uh, this is more of a First Amendment question, so feel free to Reject it if you if you'd like, but breaking news. All my preparation on the Third Amendment going to for, you know. <laughs> That's quartering soldiers. <laughs> uh, breaking news right now is that the U.S. Patent Office has sort of uh, prepared to cancel the trademark for the Redskins on the grounds that it's disparaging to Native Americans. And do you foresee this as being some sort of valid action in in relation to the fir- First Amendment and free speech, or is it likely that it'll almost immediately be struck down and there'll be some sort of strong reaction to it on the legal start? I'm happy to start. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I haven't studied the ruling. I just heard about it on a tweet, of course. Um, uh, you know, if they s- start striking that down, then I guess the, the the name of the state of Oklahoma, which means red men, will go next. Uh, I mean, the, Notre Dame fighting Irish would go. Leprechaun would, well, be, yes. would be out there. Uh, I mean, it opens up a, a Pandora's box, if if you will. So I, you know, I don't know the IP side of it, but certainly on the on the First Amendment side, it's a little uh, uh, queasy. Did you did you did you want to tone it, Josh? Maybe. Uh, hey, uh, Josh Blackman, South Te- Texas College of Law. Uh, the opinion's ninety pages long and barely mentions the First Amendment. Hmm. It's based almost entirely on the fact that this, it's uh, disparaging. And uh, Eugene Volk has blogged in this and said this is almost certainly viewpoint neutral. I'm sorry, almost certainly not viewpoint neutral because it takes a position on disparagement. This. Whether this is appealed or not, this is probably not good under valid law. But the opinion is almost entirely an IP, makes almost no mention whatsoever of the First Amendment. Thank you. Th- that's Josh Blackman, who's a professor at the South Texas College of Law and my sometime co-author. And that, that's very interesting. Uh, thanks for that. That, that. Well, you wouldn't expect necessarily the Patent and Trademark Office to know anything about the First Amendment. Uh, but that, that does uh, uh, enhance my intuition or strengthen my intuition that once it gets to a, a real court, that it won't last. Just... Uh, from a basic, I have not read the opinion, although I look forward to it. Um, just from a basic point, uh, I think Josh mentioned uh, Eugene Volokh's uh, column on this, and he talked about the serious problems of viewpoint discrimination. But fundamentally, 
one of the core purposes of the First Amendment is to protect offensive speech. If it didn't protect offensive speech, we wouldn't have any need for it. So it seems to me that there is something fundamentally wrong with the case as you portrayed it uh, uh, in terms of the, the thinking of, of the tribunal there. I have not read the opinion yet, so I reserve the right to add additional comment. But I just think at the outset, the whole idea that something's offensive and it's that somehow the First Amendment must yield turns the First Amendment on its head. I'm Roger Pilon, Cato Institute. Um, I suppose, going back to the Redskins case, the um, president has politicized uh, everything he touches. It's no surprise that the patent office would uh, follow right along in that tradition. You left out, by the way, the Cleveland Indians, uh, the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, we could probably go on and on with teams that have to change their names. But my question has to do with an issue that hasn't come up here related to campaign finance and the First Amendment, and that is the disclosure subject, which has so far been um, much mooted, but uh, and and on which you'll get opinions on both sides. So I wonder if any of you would uh, care to comment on where you think the disclosure issue is going in the campaign finance context. Might want to ask the guy sitting next to you, Roger. He's kind of the expert on that. that that's Brad Smith, another former chairman of the FEC. But we'll, uh, before we continue this trend of taking answers to questions from the audience as well, we'll, we'll let our panelists uh, have some. Go on. Um, where to begin with disclosure? What's, I think, becoming more and more clear is a lot of this push for disclosure is to do through disclosure what, they, what, what cannot be done constitutionally through bans, um, and it, it seems to be used increasingly to just regulate the same sort of stuff that the courts have said you can't regulate. It's one thing to have disclosure of money going directly to politicians. They're on the ballot. The voters, I guess, have a right to know who's giving money to their elected officials, uh, and that makes some sense. What's, what's happened, though, is that's been conflated with the idea of disclosing independent political activity which the court has um, consistently said you can't really do, whether one looks at NAACP versus Alabama, McIntyre versus Ohio, even Buckley itself. Much of the much of the what I think of as the good language in Buckley was actually actually talking about the disclosure requirements in uh, FICA. Um, some people mischaracterize Citizens United as up upholding disclosure for the first time. Well, actually, McConnell upheld the disclosure at issue in 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 and Citizens United, and the Citizens United Court simply turned back and asked applied challenge, and all that was was a one-page report that didn't require any sort of donor disclosure. Simply within a certain time period after you ran a certain kind of TV ad, you had to file a one-page report. People are trying to take this and turn it into essentially speech licensing. We have to register before you speak. You have to disclose who supports your organization and the like. Um, courts have been somewhat hostile to this. Some courts have not been hostile to it. A uh, case that was mentioned earlier out of Delaware, there's a suit um, against the Delaware law. An, an injunction was granted. It's going up to the Third Circuit. So, of course, there's not a factual record. It's an injunction. Uh, another case out of uh, the DGA brought a Democratic Governor Association suit in Connecticut. District judge up there completely 
kind of missed the boat with all due respect um, on overbreath. The Connecticut law basically says if you reference somebody who's on the ballot year round, you have to file reports with the government. Clearly at odds with Buckley versus Vallejo. So there is there's a lot of action on the disclosure front, but more and more of it seems to be designed to target the sort of people speaking uh, that used to be banned and are now no longer banned. My name is Michael Beckel. I'm a reporter with the Center for Public Integrity, and I wanted to return to the topic of the joint fundraising committees. Uh, One of the hypotheticals that was raised was that you might have someone, say, President Obama or Speaker Boehner or Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid soliciting donors at a event where a single donor could write a $100,000 check or a $500,000 check or a million dollar check or a $3 million check. Is there ever a line in the sand where that would be a potential concern, whether it's corruption, appearance of corruption, quid pro quo corruption concerns, or how is there, is there a scale there? How would that be found? Yes, I'll, I'll start again. Um, well, current law does still have lines in the sand with that, right? First of all, member of Congress is prohibited under McCain-Feingold from soliciting corporate money. They are prohibited from soliciting soft money for party committees and other groups. In other words, they're limited to raising only money subject to federal limits and the like. Even when they're asking money for nonprofits, there's limits on that. The nonprofit conducts some political activity – Certain nonprofits are permitted to do that. There's a limitation on how much a member of Congress can solicit for those sorts of groups. So there still are plenty of lines in the sand. Ultimately, with joint fundraising committees, keep in mind, as I said before, the base limits, $2,600 per election, are still in place. So it seems to me that we can can talk in terms of members of Congress soliciting million-dollar checks, but you have to realize that that's just not really – happening and there are still plenty of lines that limit the ability of the politicians to to raise money i i'd like to just make a ever so tangential point and um uh forgive uh, i ask the uh, indulgence of the questioner um because it's the point is ever so tangentially related but um <clears throat> I, i've been thinking about the mccutcheon case and the campaign finance line of cases um and in many respects, uh, at least in terms of legal education, uh, this is the subject of uh, election classes in election law. And there are more and more case books on ele- election law. And so in order to become familiar with this, students have to study election law. And there's a cursory treatment of it when it comes to First Amendment law. Uh, but in my conversations with Robert, Robert Corn Revere, uh, noted First Amendment lawyer who's with us here today, uh, Bob had pointed out to me the obvious, and sometimes it takes a lawyer to tell a professor what's obvious, and, and he's, he's very good at that. And, and that is, is that a lot of the, uh, uh, the doctrine uh, and the dicta and uh, the whole legal mindset, if you will, in these cases is very important outside of the uh, campaign finance line of cases. 
Um, and so there's a, a really a, a great benefit, not only in this area of the law, but in other areas of the law having to do with questions like pr uh, prior restraint, uh, viewpoint discrimination, uh, balancing, and what have you. And I, I think uh, for those of us who teach for seminal law, that's a rather important development. Uh, those those uh, JFCs, uh, and I have supported them, but again, the largest one ever only had 30-something candidates, and so you, the, those numbers are unrealistic. Uh, you know, that's based on taking all the House and Senate members, and uh, it's just not, not going to happen. I mean, the one, they don't stay together. They're not organized. And, but even if it did, uh, more money in politics is a good thing. Unless we're talking about the only real way of shrinking money in politics, would be to, which would be to shrink the size of government, which would reduce the incentive to spend money uh, seeking rents and subsidies and all the rest of it. Just really quickly, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Mr. McCutcheon. I, I wondered if you thought that the base limits themselves were enough of an equalizer for people, individuals trying to make uh, campaign contributions um, you know, if, if just going out and voting counts enough to have your voice heard. Is it, how did, oh, it's on. Okay. Well, uh, on the base limits, that question has come up again and again and again. My, my opinion on base limits is that they're too low. Uh, in Alabama, we don't have any limits now, but you'll find that almost no one ever donates more than $25,000. It's just so the number of base limits should be maybe around 10,000. It needs to be a larger number than where it is. But again, this, this money that we're raising in campaigns is to buy media and, you know, advertising, and it's to get ideas out into the marketplace so the voters can decide who they're going to vote for and what the candidates are really going to do and who the candidates are. So that that's the money is being spent on free speech and, uh, and campaigns uh, so, so that the voters can vote. And at the end, it boils down to the votes, just like like he said a while ago. What I'll say, what I like to say about about base limits is that uh, I mean you have to understand that any campaign finance uh, restriction uh, regulation uh, is an example of the government deciding who can speak, how much, on what topic. And so the government bears a very strong burden of justification uh, in why it can restrict people's rights that way. And when I say people's rights, uh, I don't, I'm not meaning to say that money is speech. It's not. But neither are megaphones or laptops or printing presses. But restricting uh, such things that facilitate speech um, is a violation of the First Amendment. So it's not you know, a regulation that, that stops me from, I don't know, uh, buying five microwaves at one time. That might have some constitutional or other legal problems, but it wouldn't be a First Amendment issue um, because that money of mine isn't going towards producing speech. Uh, you know, unless we're talking about there's some you know ballot initiative about microwaves or something, but you know. Um, but otherwise, uh, you have to think about money as the same way as well. You can only have one megaphone or two megaphones, or the decibel level on your megaphone can only be set a certain level, or you can only be hooked up to a certain speed of uh, internet connection while you're blogging, or you know whatever the other types of restrictions that you can imagine. Uh, that is the way that I conceive of the whole money is speech, money in politics. You know what you know shouldn't we be able to equalize uh, sort of uh, line of argument? Done. 
Um, you raise you raise you raise a good a, a good point's been raised, and that is the burden of proof the government has to has to um, has to show to justify regulation. Regulation is not the norm in campaign finance. It's the exception to the rule. The rule is the First Amendment, right? Congress shall make no law, and then there's all the clauses. Um, and the government has to prove that it can justify uh, its need for regulation. And the court has said that there's only really uh, one, one rationale that works for contribution limits. That's a corruption or, or its appearance. So whether or not base limits are enough of an equalizer really – purposes of constitutional law is just an irrelevant question. But it made me think of something else using the word equalizer. Do you think it's an appropriate equalizer that you, as a newspaper reporter for a corporate entity, can sit down with a candidate, talk about internal plans, needs, and strategies of that candidate, and then on election day run an editorial urging your readers who to vote for or who to vote against? But if my clients sat down, or if I sat down with that same candidate, had the same exact discussion, put out the same message, if it's a corporate client, they're banned. You think that's an equalizer? You get to do that, but others don't? Thank you very much. I really appreciate all of your perspectives. Um, should there be any limitations to donations? Uh, what would you say to those who affirm that 200,000 versus millions is an exception? And furthermore, unlimited donations do not provide the same influence, same representation, and disenfranchise the lower middle class. Should there be limits on donations? Uh, if we remove donations, wouldn't that disenfranchise or relatively disenfranchise the lower classes who can't donate? No, there shouldn't be limits on the total donations because, again, this is about free speech. We're, we're spending the money on public messages that, that everyone can hear, and if you don't like the message, you can turn it off. I mean, but, again, uh, it's about marketing ideas and the idea marketplace. And the, the only way you can select the best ideas if you're a voter that don't, you know, that, that is to hear those ideas. And we're, we're talking about presenting ideas and candidates and, and spending money on media and advertising—it's—it it is speech, and but uh, I don't—I don't buy the free or the speech equals money. To me, free speech is much, much greater than money. So uh, you know, f the speech is worth way more than money. I would put a double greater greater than sign on there instead of an equal sign in terms of math. In other words, I would trade all my money for for free speech. Okay, and it, it's very important. Hi guys, Corey Hubbard. Um, Sean, I wondered too if you could sort of address. I think the the kind of underlying question is is the disenfranchised um, point and, and whether or not speech is equal to basically strengthen the political process. So um, my favorite stuff that you've ever talked about has been um, competition in politics, right? So n so not favoring the incumbents. I wondered if you could talk more about with the influx of more speech and or more activity that's going to kind of rise the tide for um, better candidates and sort of that competition factor. Well, well, a lot of candidates can't self-fund, so how are they going to raise money? And it, uh, it hasn't been talked about very much, but many of the candidates I supported, and both in the last cycle and this cycle, did not win. 
they lost, but they had a lot of, a lot of good ideas that, that the, the winning campaign will have to address or adopt or at least deal with. So again, it's about marketing ideas and getting the best candidates and ideas into office. And in order to do that, we have to know who these people are and what, what, they, what their ideas are, what they wanna do. So we have to hear from them. And if, and if they're not born rich, how are they gonna get elected if they can't raise money? Thank you for all the very thoughtful comments. This discussion strikes me a little bit about can you be a little bit pregnant? Because you're correct. Once you try to make things equal or try to assure that there's less influence in money, you begin to get on a very slippery slope of how then do you prevent the abuse. And I have a question related to Cato because Cato certainly has been in the news recently because of the alleged change of control. I don't know how to explain the Karch brothers or not. But two questions. One, when a program like this is being put together, is there a thought of where the sponsors' money are coming from and what this should say? Could we have this program at Brookings Institute or the Central for Center for American Progress? And then to try to relate it to this discussion, suppose in this program towards the end, you began saying, well, here are, the, here are the politicians who supported limitations on campaign, who supported you know, various laws. Here are the candidates who didn't support these laws or the, or the ones who opposed it, or you took the Leahy Amendment and you said, here are the ones lining up one way and here are the ones. Is that political action yet or are you staying out of it? How does the Cato Institute deal with this issue of not, I assume, of not wanting to be involved with influencing a specific election, or do you ignore it? I don't know, thank you. So Cato is a 501c3, which is a tax designation. It's not a designation by the Federal Election Commission, which means that we're a, a nonprofit uh, organization, the same as a, as a charity, and part, which means that donations to us are, are tax deductible. And part of uh, the uh, way that the, the laws of 501c3s, uh, charitable organizations, work is that you cannot engage in political advocacy. And we can debate the wisdom of that or the involvement of the IRS in politics in a, in a separate forum. That's a, another kettle of fish. Um, uh, but uh, this, you know, you, Cato sells itself, sells its ideas uh, for, what they're, for what they're worth. Um, you know, we, most of our donations uh, are by individuals, uh, upwards of 90%, and then there's uh, little bits by uh, foundations and a very small bit, something like 1% or so by corporations. Um, different think tanks do it differently. Some think tanks have an endowment, some don't. I mean, uh, all of these issues of, of, of corporate governance and, and tax structure are you know, largely beside the point. We don't hide what our position is or what our ideology is. Um, uh, that, that's, you know, if, if people like what we're producing, they can fund us. That's the way it works. Uh, it's frowned upon in the think tank community, in the scholar community, to engage in what's called pay for play. That is, some donor gives us a, a lot of money saying, you know, only if you write a report or only if you write about this issue or, you know, I, I'm, I'm heavily involved, you know, Sean's in the electrical energy and, and coal manufacturing. Um, you know, I'm not going to take it. If he, you know, after this, 
at my jibes at, at telling him, you know, you know, you, you should spend some of that money supporting Cato now. If he says, well, I'll only support Cato if you start producing a lot of more reports supporting the coal industry, we'll say thanks, but no thanks. We don't do that sort of thing. Uh, and you can, you know, talk to other organizations uh, about how they run things. That's that's generally the way that it works in terms of uh, nonprofit uh, advocacy groups. So. Uh, I have no idea how Brookings, you know, you can address uh, questions to different organizations uh, that way. Uh, but uh, uh, I guess I'll, I'll finish answering your question by uh, um, relating an anecdote from when I testified before Congress almost two years ago now uh, on this topic or on Citizens United and, you know, potential amendments there you know, to, to the First Amendment there, too, that we were now, I guess, seeing the flowering of that. Uh, Dick Durbin, subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, and his first question to me, uh, you know, wasn't quibbling with my analysis of the First Amendment or, uh, you, know, you know, some question about legal theory of the Supreme Court or what have you. He said, Mr. Shapiro, shouldn't you be recused from this uh, hearing because, of course, you work for the Koch-controlled Cato Institute and, and, you know, they're trying to control our elections and so forth and so on. Uh, what's, what's kind of funny is that at the time, the Kochs were actually suing us. And, I, you know, I have no problem with, with, with uh, the Kochs in general. Uh, I've given speeches, you know, not tied to Cato and previous to my involvement in Cato that have probably been funded by the Kochs. But uh, at the time, they were suing us, so clearly there, there was no conflict. But uh, in, in general, um, it, it, it's, it's funny to me to say, you know, who are, who's supporting this or where is the money coming from or uh, all of these disclosure things. I, I don't know what uh, uh, someone would learn or how that would help them decide how to vote uh, if you knew uh, every single one, who the names of every single one of our donors are. You know, judge the ideas based on what they are, uh, rather than uh, trying to put in some sort of rules that chill speech by uh, disallowing people from acting in support of their own beliefs. I'm not sure I have a question, but I just want to add something to this that it, this question really takes us to a critical point for our country, and that is if at the end of this program Cato were to give the information as to who supported the Leahy Amendment and who didn't, at least in some people's minds, you all may be violating your tax status. You may be committing some sort of crime. And when information about how our elected officials vote or what measures they sponsor might put someone in legal jeopardy, we have one hell of a First Amendment problem. Indeed, there have been complaints filed uh, against Cato, at least in the media. I don't know how far they've progressed in terms of the regulatory agencies. When we put out, for example, every other year a, uh, a ranking of governors based on fiscal policy, does that mean we endorse you know, the ones who got A's and are telling people to vote for them? could be read that way, depending on who's on the election commission or who's on the IRS. Uh, so indeed, if, uh, you know, to put an even finer point on it, if I projected on this screen, PowerPoint, by the way, is unconstitutional and as applied in most cases, but if I were to project uh, on this screen the senators who are, you know, co-sponsoring the Leahy Amendment, um, I'm, I'm sure we would see some sort of uh, a complaint or it would, it would uh, generate some questions in some people's minds about, indeed, if we were uh, improperly being involved in political advocacy uh, in a way that our 501c3 status does, doesn't allow. If I could just make a plug for one of my next books uh, with David Scover, uh, and speaks to the issue of the intention of the speaker. 
uh, our next uh, book, or my next book with David Scoper, is on robotics, artificial intelligence, and free speech, uh, which is a, a rapidly developing area. And uh, when it comes to questions of intent, uh, to say the least, the waters are very murky. Uh, I want to close this just by asking Sean one final question. What's, what's been the most kind of surprising thing or the biggest thing that's stuck in your mind uh, throughout this process? I mean, you're, you know, you're a very kind of humble guy, you know, millionaire next door kind of uh, sort of thing. But, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you're not the, the lowest information voter, as it were. You have a college degree. You run your own business uh, successfully. And, and you, you, know, you try to engage in the world. And you've, you're kind of sort of new still to the political world, but you're definitely new to the legal world. So throughout this process of challenging these campaign finance laws, what struck you? Um, you know, those of us who are constantly working in this, we kind of lose track of this. But someone who's an educated layman, uh, what, what struck you as, as memorable or surprising? Uh, well, the, the whole thing has blown me away. Uh, it's, uh, I never expected all this. And I definitely ne- never understood what Dan Backer meant by First Amendment freedom. But as far as me personally, and again, I've only been in politics about uh, active in politics about five years. I've been working very hard in the industry, and I was always trained to run from lawyers, not hang out with them. So, uh, so this was a big step. But the, the amazing thing to me is the the simplicity of the First Amendment, how true it is, and and that that there's so much confusion about, uh, you know, here in D.C. about the value of the First Amendment. So again, it's the the Constitution and the people versus you know the the people with having a limited government. It's just the whole reason I decided to do this was just because the more. Dan told me about the First Amendment, the more it just was just music to my ears. So again, I would say the, the First Amendment. By the way, if I can just add a quick note on that. One of the joys of writing this book, which was something that David and I had never come across, is interviewing someone like Sean. When you ask him a question directly, he answers it directly. <laughs> what you see is what you get. No holes barred. And it sometimes I couldn't believe the notes I was taking. So you mean his PR agency isn't doing their job? Well, <laughs> I don't know whether or not they're doing their job, but if you want the true, unvarnished, uninhibited, robust, and always wide open, here's the man you go to. Well, on that note, let's give a round of applause to our panelists. <laughs>